0: Let's pray together. Father, we do, we rejoice. We have every reason to rejoice because of what our Savior has accomplished. Thank you for this reminder. We pray for those that we are and have the privilege, really, of supporting, helping to support around the world. We pray for Seda and Emma Church Planting in Tokyo. Thank you that they were able to baptize Hito recently, their friend they've known the entire time there in Tokyo. Thank you for the recent family camps they were able to put on. We pray that the conversations and opportunities from that time would simply continue as they seek to show who Jesus is through their deeds and words. We pray for Jasmine and her continuing work among the Tarahumara people group in Mexico, that you would use her works of compassion and service such that hearts would be open there, that through through your kindness shown through her, you would lead people to repentance in that people group. We pray for Jose, also the Navy chaplain we sponsor at Camp Pendleton. We pray that his workups... Every month leading to deployment this summer would go well. We ask you to sustain Jose, Rebecca, and the kids through these times apart. And we ask that you would use Jose on this coming deployment as the only chaplain to 600 Marines and sailors aboard that ship. Oh, Lord, give him opportunities to minister and declare the good news. We want to thank you also. Thank you that Matthew's MRI this week showed no growth of a brain tumor thank you for jeff richard's scan showing no growth or signs of recurring tumor thank you for those things thank you that debbie sperry reports to us that you are using the chemotherapy to to shrink tumors in her body and we pray you'd use the radiation to do the same for the lymphoma we ask you to sustain her We pray for Amanda Mullery, that you would use the new medication that she's on, oh Lord, to grant her the ability to take in more and more nutrition, that you would strengthen her body this way. We pray in the rest of our time, you would fill us, Holy Spirit. You command us to be filled in Ephesians 5, verse 18. And so fill us, we ask you, in the rest of our time here. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And if you are newer here or a guest, just want to again extend a special welcome to you. Thank you so much for being here. I realize it's a little bit awkward with the COVID era trying to get to know people here. We do want to get to know you better, though, so if you can Stick around afterwards. We love to get to know you better. Most of all, I hope you feel our warm, warm welcome.
1: Good? All right. Usually the sound guy goes unnoticed unless something bad happens, but Matthew, I'm just going to say that one was your fault, so um, I don't feel bad right now. (laughs) I guess it was Alana's fault. Well, it is good being together this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 12 as we continue our journey with Jesus to the cross and the empty tomb I'm excited this morning to be looking at the triumphal entry beginning in John chapter 12, verse 12. So if you have your Bibles open up to those kiddos as Mindy reads our passage this morning, I just want to encourage you to listen and to hear what special Sunday we celebrate or we will be celebrating coming up that is talked about in this passage, we call it a certain day. And so listen to what, what, what she reads and to see if you can catch what Sunday that is. So, Mindy, will you read our passage?
2: Listen and take in the word of the Lord from John twelve, twelve through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went to tol- and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mindy. All right, kids. So what what Sunday was this that we just read about? Can you shout it out? On Sunday, that's right. That's what we are reading on. It's really interesting. We're here in John chapter 12, and the, the next nine chapters of this book will cover the final week of Jesus's life, covering here and here this morning. We're going to see the climax and the end of Jesus's public ministry. Well, it had been quite the night. Mary, one of Jesus' closest disciples, had, had performed this bold act of extravagant devotion as she anointed Jesus' feet with this costly oil. As the disciples awoke the next day, I'm sure they were thinking that this was going to be just another, that this was going to be an ordinary day, nothing, nothing like the dramatic events of the night before. Well, after they had gotten up and gotten ready for the day, maybe after they as they're finishing up their breakfast, Jesus tells them that they're going to Jerusalem. Surely they would have thought nothing of this. They had made this two-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem a number of times. But as Jesus is telling them that they're going to make their way into Jerusalem, they have no clue what is happening there. Because have, having gotten word that Jesus was making his way into the city, a large crowd begins to form. And what this large crowd does is nothing short of remarkable. Look at verse twelve. Look I me mean, starting in verse 12 at what this large crowd does. This large crowd that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna! It means save us! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Even the king of Israel. Hearing that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, the people prepare a welcoming party. But this isn't just any welcoming party. It turns out this is a coronation ceremony with all of the appropriate royal pomp and circumstance that you would expect in the first century Israel. You see, the people had gathered together at the entrance of the city to make Jesus their king. Unaware of of what was going on at the entrance to the city, I wonder how far off Jesus and his disciples were before they first heard those distant cries of what sounded like, Hosanna, Hosanna, cries that grew louder and louder as they got closer and closer to the city. Was Jesus and his disciples, as they make that final turn and they can see the entrance to the city, as they see the people lined up with palm branches, this large crowd of people singing out Hosanna. I wonder what was going through their minds. Here they are out in the open looking to make Jesus their king. This isn't the first time that this had happened. We've seen this a number of times over Jesus' three year ministry, people trying to come and take Jesus and make him their king. But this celebration this morning was certainly the most spectacular one that they had seen. And the disciples weren't amazed at what the crowd was doing, what Jesus does next, how Jesus responds to this, to this crowd's heralding him as a king would have been even more amazing. Because this time here, rather than rejecting their pleas for a king, which he had done multiple times before, this time he accepts their royal offer as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We see this here in verses 14 and 15. We read, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. After witnessing this truly remarkable scene, we see the reactions of a couple of different groups. John tells us in verse 16 that the disciples are just confused. The text tells us that the disciples don't understand everything that's going on here. In verses 17 and 18, we see that this large crowd continued following Jesus wanting him to be their king, but as we'll see, for their own selfish purposes. And in verse 19, we see the Pharisees simply throwing up their hands in defeat as they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Well, immediately after Jesus has entered Jerusalem, in verse 20, we're told that two Greeks, two, two Gentiles, Gentiles being any person who's not Jewish, these two Greeks proof that the whole world had gone after Jesus. They come and they approach one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, and they say, we wish to see Jesus. We're not exactly sure what they're want- why they're wanting to see Jesus. We're not sure what they're wanting to ask him. But Philip goes to Andrew and Andrew goes to Philip and together they go to Jesus and they tell him that there are two Greeks who desire to see him. Well, for Jesus, the the arrival of these two Greeks wanting to seek him, seeking him out, it triggers something inside Jesus because rather than giving Andrew and Philip an answers to whether or not he would talk and see these Greeks, in verse 23 he replies, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this isn't the first time that the disciples had heard Jesus talk about the hour. He had mentioned this hour multiple times before, but every time he had said his hour had not come. His hour had not come. But here now, Jesus tells his disciples that his hour has come, and now he's going to be glorified. Hearing this, you can almost imagine how happy the disciples and the crowds would have been to hear this. I mean, Jesus, the one that they've been following, was finally going to be glorified. He was going to be the conquering king that the crowd has been longing for. He was going to come in. He was going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. And when all was said and done, Jesus is going to be the one elevated. Jesus is going to be the one worshipped and praised by all the people And the disciples are thinking that as his closest followers, they too would receive the power and the praise that comes with being associated with the king. Jesus being glorified here for them is a great thing. He's going to come in and conquer the Romans. He's going to be elevated, taken to this place of power and prestige. And for the disciples and the crowds, they are just going to bask in his glory and receive all the, the good that comes from being associated with this king. But as Jesus keeps talking, we see that he has a very different idea of what it means for him to be glorified. In verse 24, Jesus continues and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Surely this would have, would have dashed their hopes just a bit. It certainly would have left them scratching their heads. I mean, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? A grain of wheat falling, dying, and bearing fruit. This isn't the, the image of the conquering king that they and the crowds had been hoping for. And If they weren't confused already, what Jesus goes on to say certainly would have done the trick as he shows them what life in this kingdom looks like. He says in verses 25 and 26, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Losing my life, hating my life, Being a servant. What what is Jesus talking about here? I'm sure the disciples are thinking, where is the power and the influence? Where are the the high positions of authority that, that come with being associated with the king? Well, as the Greeks walk away, I'm sure the disciples are asking themselves, what kind of king is this? And what kind of kingdom is he bringing? The disciples had woke up that morning thinking, that nothing could top the events of the previous night. Perhaps they were even looking forward to a quiet day. But as we've just seen, this was anything but a quiet day. And as we know, it looks like the disciples are in for quite a week. Well, this, this, is, this is our story. This is the story of the triumphal entry. As we look at this story, as we try to experience it, as the disciples and this crowd and the crowd would have, it's important for us to, to take a step back and to, to ask and try to see what, what what's going on here. Why did God include this event in our Bibles? What does God want us to see from this story here? Especially a story like the triumphal entry that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Surely it is important that we catch what is going on here. Jesus wants us to see what's going on here. And I think the main point, the thing that God desires for us to see in this passage is that Jesus is the long-expected king bringing a very unexpected kingdom. That's what God wants us to see here. God wants us to see that Jesus is the anticipated king, the king that Israel has been longing and looking forward to. But his kingdom is going to be unlike anything that the world had ever seen expected king unexpected kingdom let's break this this down here and look at each of those parts in turn first this passage here shows us that jesus is the long expected king from the very out front of this passage everything about it screams royalty As word spreads that Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, we see a large, massive crowd begin to form, and they do a couple very significant things that would have indicated to everyone that was looking that they had one intention, and that is to make Jesus their king. The first thing we read is they grab palm branches. Now, for you and I, this might just be something that we think of that they have at church on a on Palm Sunday or something just associated with Palm Sunday, but for the first century Jews, palm branches were loaded with political and national and religious significance. You see, for the first century Jews seeing these palm branches, they would have instantly associated these with the Maccabean Revolt. You might not have ever heard of that, and it's not important that you have, but about 150 years before Jesus walks into Jerusalem this morning, there was a, a revolt of the, Jew, of the Jewish people as they overtook, as they took back Jerusalem from the Syrians. They call it the, the Maccabean Revolt because of the two brothers. Simon and Judas Maccabeus, who were the head. They were the ones who led the army, who led the the victory in expelling the Assyrians from Jerusalem and in cleansing and rededicating the temple after Antiochus of Epiphanes had defiled the temple. So in grabbing, and so So this is Simon and Judas, they expel the Syrians from the city and on their way back into Jerusalem as a sign of celebration, the people grab these palm branches and are waving them in celebration as they come back in. And so as they hear Jesus coming, they think the same thing is happening here. They think that Jesus here is is following up with Judas and Simon Maccabeus, and they think that he is the king who is coming to once again expel the oppressive forces from Jerusalem, this time the Romans. So they get these palm branches here, these things loaded with political and national significance, thinking that Jesus is going to be the one to come who would reclaim Israel and who would make it great. But this isn't all they do, because as we see in verse 13, as they go out to meet Jesus, something that you would only do for a royal dignitary, they are singing a song. There in verse 13, we we hear them singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna means save us now. And this song here comes from Psalm 118, which was a messianic psalm. What that means here is this was a psalm that had come to be associated with God's anointed Messiah. So as these crowds have gathered here this morning and they are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are, are singing as an expression of their longing for God to send his promised king, the one who would deliver them. And they are looking to Jesus and they are saying, Jesus, you are that king. You are God's promised king. So in these two, taking these two things together here, it's very clear that the people want to make Jesus their king. And Jesus is very clear in his response here that he is accepting their uh, coronation in making, him, in, in making him king. You see, it, the symbol of the donkey is a royal symbol in the ancient Near East. And even in the Old Testament, we see that God's rulers... We see God's judges rode on donkeys. King David rode on donkeys. And I think most significantly for our passage here this morning, King Solomon, during his coronation ceremony, himself rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Donkeys are are royal figures. One one commentator called them the Mercedes-Benz of the ancient Near East. Now, I don't know any kings that drive Mercedes-Benz. That seems like, like a kind of like not nice enough for them. But donkeys weren't just these lowly animals that had no significance. Here in this context, donkeys had very important symbolic royal significance. Jesus mounting this donkey was not coming as trying to defer their, their signs wanting to make him king. No, he is saying very clearly, I am the long expected king. Here in his final act, Jesus, the climax of his public ministry, Jesus is appropriately herald and proclaimed as king. That's the first thing we're to see. Jesus is the long-expected king. But even as all of this is happening, we're supposed to get the impression from the text that there is something more important, something deeper that is going on here in this moment and that's exactly what we see next, because while Jesus is the long-expected king, we see that he has arrived to Jerusalem to inaugurate a very unexpected kingdom, a kind of kingdom that the world has never seen and will never see again. We see the unexpected nature of this kingdom in, in multiple places in this passage, but I just want to look at one of them, I think the most significant, and that is in verse 23. In verse 23, these two Greeks have come and they, or Philip and Andrew have come and they said, two Greeks, they, they'd like to speak with you. They want, to, they want to talk with you about something. And Jesus replies with this ominous reply, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Up to this point, right, there's, there's, there's no confusion. A, a king being glorified would have been, would have been nothing new. But as Jesus keeps talking, we see that his glorification will not be what naturally comes to mind for you and for me. And Jesus shows exactly what this glorification looks like in verse 24. As he continues, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here we see that the glorification that Jesus has in mind isn't ascending a majestic throne, not receiving a crown of gold as people around him wave banners and sing songs. As Jesus is showing us here in this illustration, the glorification that he has in mind is his pending death and resurrection. Here we see that while Jesus accepted the crowd's royal acclamations, He refuses to be a pawn in their political and religious struggles with Rome. Jesus here, he he comes as king, yes, but he comes to bring an entirely different kingdom. Because Jesus here, he doesn't come to lead an insurrection like the crowd wanted. No, Jesus came to bring salvation. Jesus doesn't come to establish an earthly kingdom, but Jesus has come to establish a heavenly one. Jesus didn't come to free the people from Roman rule, but to free the people from their slavery to sin. And most importantly here, Jesus did not come to defeat Herod, Pilate, and the Romans, but to defeat our ultimate enemies of Satan, sin, and death. That is what Jesus is doing here. That is the kingdom that he is bringing, the unexpected kingdom here. Because this unexpected kingdom that Jesus is bringing, it doesn't begin with the royal coronation, but it begins with a crucifixion. The only crown that Jesus came to wear in his first coming wasn't a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And the only throne that Jesus plans on ascending here in Jerusalem is a cross. This is what Jesus has in mind when he says that the hour has come for him to be glorified. Jesus is going to be glorified through his death and his resurrection. And as we see at the end of verse 24, as Jesus makes clear, the reason why Jesus could look at his death as his moment of glorification, which for any other, which for any other person to die would not be their ultimate glorification, but for Jesus. For him to die, it is his moment of glorification because in his death, he brings others life. As he shows us in verse 24, the seed must fall and die if any life is to come from it. Jesus Jesus here sees his death as his moment of glory because of what it accomplishes. It enables sinners like you and me to receive eternal life. Because in Jesus' sacrificial death on the Christ, on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sins. He satisfies God's holy wrath against, holy wrath and anger against our rebellion, so that through faith in Him, we can receive forgiveness and amazingly have an intimate relationship with him. And as we would expect from this king bringing an unexpected kingdom, Jesus does all of this, not by coming as a conquering warrior king, wielding his sword, but he accomplishes this. He brings salvation as he comes as the sacrificial Passover lamb, the one who would fall to the ground dying so that others might have life. This is the unexpected kingdom that our king is bringing. Here in Jesus' death on the cross, we see the great irony of the gospel, the, the paradox of the unexpected kingdom that Jesus, the king, the creator, the ruler of the whole world, is glorified in a cross, a place associated with shame, with suffering, and with humility. This is the unexpected nature of Christ's kingdom. I think we appropriate thing to say would be, long live the King. You think about that. Well, before we turn to the applications, I just want to encourage any here, any who are here who might not currently be trusting in Jesus Christ. If you are here, if you are either new to the church, if you are here this morning because someone dragged you or has made you come, and you are just aware in this moment that you have not placed your faith In Jesus Christ, this morning, I would encourage you to come to this long expected King, bringing the one who brings salvation. Turn to him, trusting in the forgiveness of sins, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Because the author here of this gospel, the author John, while in this passage here, he shows us that Jesus is the King who comes riding on a donkey, bringing salvation. The same author, John, in the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus will return. He is coming again, but when he comes, he will not be riding on a donkey bringing salvation. But when Christ returns, he will come riding on a war horse prepared for judgment. That's the the bad news of the gospel, as it were. The bad news of the gospel is that apart from Christ, we will experience God's just and holy judgment on our sin. And that will happen. Jesus will return bringing judgment for those who have not trusted in him. But for all those who turn to him looking to his glorification here, his death and his resurrection, you can receive the joy of all joys, forgiveness of sins, and intimate relationship with him. So turn to Christ this morning. So we've seen our story. We've looked at what God desires for us to see from it. And here, in the closing minutes, I think it's important that we ask perhaps the most important question this morning, and that is, so what? What does it matter that Jesus is the expected king bringing an unexpected kingdom? How is this to impact our lives? Well, certainly there are many applications that we can and should make to our lives this morning. I want to draw two applications from our passage. The first application I think God wants us to see here is that God is inviting us to behold our crucified king. This morning in this passage here, God is inviting us to join the people lining the streets of Jerusalem as we behold our crucified king, as we feast our eyes on Christ. Here in this passage of the triumphal entry, in Jesus' interaction, or Jesus' response to these two Greeks, God is inviting us to marvel and to give thanks, and to give thanks to our king, the one who was highest, the ruler of all, and to just marvel at the fact that he who was highest became lowest, bearing the shame and the humiliation of the cross for us and for our salvation, bringing us the salvation and the deliverance that we most need. Not our salvation from any worldly power or political party, but our salvation from our slavery to sin. God's invitation to us this morning is, Behold your King. He's calling us here to to stop with the busyness of life, to put away the idea that we always have to be doing something and to set our eyes and our hearts on Jesus, the one who was crucified and raised for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, this, this idea here of beholding our crucified king might not seem very productive to you, but I am telling you that it is the most important thing that we can do. Because as we ponder and as we meditate, as we behold our crucified King, as we behold Jesus, the one who rules and reigns over all, the fact that He died the sacrificial death on the cross that we deserved, as we behold Him, we will be moved to worship. I think in the song that we sang earlier, Is He Worthy? That when we behold our crucified King, cries of worthy come from our hearts. As we behold him hanging on the cross, dying for our sin, for our rebellion, the only appropriate response is worship. It is cries of worthy, as we see in Revelation 5 that that song is based from. We behold Christ, we cry out, worthy is the Lamb. I think it's so important for us to to sit in this idea of beholding our crucified king because in the attention economy that we live in, there are so many other things vying for our attention at all times, calling us to behold them and not Christ. As you think of your cell phone, you think of TVs, computers, we just think of media and messages all around us. They are all siren calls seeking to distract us from beholding what is most beautiful. But God here in this this passage, in his kindness to us, is inviting us to fix our gaze on him, the one who is most lovely and the one who is most beautiful. I think just reflecting on this idea of beholding in my, in my heart, I was just so grateful for the gift of corporate worship, the reality of what we are doing right now. Because each week as you and I gather together, we have the privilege of physically gathering together here in this park as a corporate body to behold Jesus. Not the only way that we can behold Jesus, but I think it is one of the most important and the most formative ways that we can gather, that we can behold Jesus is by gathering together. You see, God knows that you and I will struggle and be distracted from beholding him. And in his kindness, he invites us to gather together here each Sunday to behold what is most beautiful. And in the songs that we sing as we proclaim our crucified king, as we recite the creeds that remind us of who Jesus is And what he's done. I just in the Nicene Creed that we that we recited this morning, I just so love and resonate with that line for us and for our salvation. And that is just so rich. We read these creeds, we gather together to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. This is a privilege, this is an opportunity as we gather together to receive from him, as we gather to take the bread and the cup there, and as we do all of these things, God is, in, is drawing us to himself. He's inviting us to lift our chins and to fix our gaze on him, the one who is most beautiful. What a gift from God our Sunday services are as a brief encouragement here, if this isn't how you normally think about our Sunday services, that they seem perhaps to you more something you just do because you're supposed to do them, I would just ask you to encourage, I would just encourage you to to ask the Holy Spirit to allow you to come here expectant and excited to behold our crucified King, because that is what we get to do each Sunday that's that's the, the, the first application, the first takeaway for us, is to behold our crucified king. And I think following from this, the second application for all of us is to follow our crucified king. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me one more time. Here in these verses, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone, ser- if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here, Jesus is showing us what, it, what life in his kingdom looks like. And as we see in these verses, it looks like living a cruciform life as we follow our crucified king. That's what the, the Christian life is. That's what these verses are an invitation to. They are an invitation to living a crucify, a cruciform life as we follow our crucified King. Let's consider what Jesus is calling us to in these verses. He's calling us to hate our lives. Now, here, this doesn't mean so much that we hate life itself, but that we don't take much thought for our own lives in this world because we have prioritized the kingdom of God. What it means to hate our lives, to so prioritize God's kingdom over our own kingdom that we are willing to hate our lives, to prioritize him and his kingdom over us. Not only are we called to hate our lives, but we are called to serve him. Here, this is a a dying to ourselves and a living for God where we gladly lay down our rights and our entitlements for the sake of Christ to serve and to follow him. And lastly, here in these verses, Jesus calls us to follow him. Given, given what we've seen this morning, we know that as we follow Christ, we are following him down a very specific road, the road to Calvary. We are following following him down the road to the cross, where suffering, shame, and sacrifice await us. These verses here show us that those who are saved by the cross. Must take up theirs. So this passage is calling us to. It's calling us to follow him by living a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life, as we follow our crucified King. I was just thinking this uh, this morning actually about this and how it can help perhaps curb our expectations. This idea of the life that Jesus is calling us to live can help us with our expectations. Unfortunately, in our day and age here in a prosperous United States of America, the message that we can receive about Christianity is that becoming a Christian means living a life of guaranteed health, wealth, and happiness. If you follow Jesus, nothing bad is going to happen to you. If anything bad happens, just have more faith and it'll be better. That's, that's the message that we receive. There are too many people just trying to peddle that message to us. But here, Jesus knows that it's vital for us to understand what the Christian, looks like, Christian life looks like and to see it as a life that is a life of suffering, a life of trials, a life, a life of challenges. The Christian life is not a perfect life. And I think this can help us because in the moments where life doesn't work out the way that we expect it to, when we lose our job, when we, when we don't get the promotion we were hoping we would get, when the MRI, when we thank God that these MRI results came back clear, but in moments when the MRI results, when they don't come back clear, when, we, when things don't get better, when your health doesn't improve, if you think the Christian life is all a life of health, wealth, and happiness, these things will crush you these things will crush you and they will just cause you to throw away Christianity thinking that you had just bought a fake bill of goods. But as we look to Christ, as we see the crucified life that he lives, we can have a different perspective as we run into the challenges and the trials that life in this fallen world brings. And we can face them very aware that as we walk the road of suffering... As we walk the road of shame and of difficulty, we are merely following in the footsteps of our Savior. That's what it means to to follow Christ, to follow our crucified King. And as we do all of this, as we live a life of dying to ourselves, as we live a life of serving others, of suffering, there's a wonderful truth here in verse 26 where we read, that Jesus says, and where I am, there my servant will be also. These words are just a precious promise to us that as we walk this cruciform life, we have the promise that Jesus will be with us, that Jesus is with us as we follow in his footsteps here. And as we saw Um, just last week, as we considered our life of discipleship and the fact that we will never give more than Christ gave. We will never love more than Christ loved. Here, as we consider this cruciform life, we see the same reality at play. Because in our suffering, which we will suffer, we are following the one who experienced the ultimate suffering for us and for our salvation. In our serving of others, in our life of laying down our rights, our privileges, and our entitlements to serve others, we are following the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in our sacrificial love for others, we are following the one whose love for us led to the ultimate sacrifice on a Christ wherein we could experience forgiveness An intimate relationship with him as we walk this cruciform life, we are following in the footsteps and walking with the long-expected King. Just as we we close this morning, I just want to want to to want you to consider right now. I just want to invite you to consider where Jesus might be calling you to adjust your expectations of what the Christian life looks like, to consider, is there an area in your life right now where you can follow this crucified king? Maybe that is in just serving someone else right now in a way that you don't want to. But in sacrificially serving this other person, you can be following in the footsteps of your crucified king. Maybe it's in sacrificing or setting aside your freedoms and the rights and your rights for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Or maybe it's living for the kingdom of God over the kingdom of self, prioritizing his kingdom over ours. That's what it looks like. Those are the takeaways I believe God has for us this morning. He wants us to behold our crucified king that we might become like him and to follow our crucified king with the promise that he is with us. I want to invite Rick to come on down, invite the ushers to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. And as they do, I just I love that we end each service by celebrating the Lord's Supper, because it is always and a fitting conclusion as we come to the preached word to end by celebrating together Christ's life, death. And resurrection. One of our takeaways this morning was to behold our crucified king. And as we come to the table, we don't we don't have a table here, but as we come and as we take the bread and the cup, we are beholding our crucified king. We are looking once again, we are remembering once again what he did that we might experience life and relationship with him. And we do this each Sunday because on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Later, he took the cup, saying, This cup is God's covenant with my, of my, with my blood, sealed with my blood. Drink from it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes which I just want to invite you when you are ready to come to take the bread, to take the cup. And as you do so, behold your crucified king as you consider what it looks like to follow him.